Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and today we've got a special treat for you. As you all know, Jim and I are doing a live event in Walt Disney World on November 10th through the 13th. We'll be walking around the parks, telling stories, and then telling those same stories, but with alcohol later on. And our travel partner for this is Storybook Destinations. We've invited on Tammy Wedding, owner, operator, comptroller of Storybook Destinations on to tell us a little bit more about the event. Also, we've got Jim. Jim, say hi. Hi. <laughs> Fantastic. So, so Tammy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Why don't you tell folks a little bit about what they can expect at this event? Let's say go day by day, starting with Friday and the events that we're going to do. And then Jim and I will, as I said before, provide smart aleck comments about what we're actually going to do. Okay, perfect. You can... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, starts Friday the 10th, uh, November 10th. Yep. Basically, that day, it'll be pretty informal. We'll just have a check-in desk at Coronado Springs. So, you can go in and come mm-hmm. and talk to us, ask us any questions. We'll give you some information. Any last-minute changes that happen, time changes or anything like that, we'll let you know there. Okay. And then... That night, we'll have an informal meetup at Rick's just to get to know each other, see each other for the first time, things like that. So Rick's is the bar at Coronado Springs? Right, yep. And Coronado Springs is the host resort for this event, right? It is, correct. It is. And so we'll kind of base there, but we'll be uh, you know, going off to do some other things as well. But Sure. And that's kind of a construction site at the point? So is everybody being issued a complimentary <laughs> hard hat and orange vest? I went to check this out, Jim. It's the construction of Caribbean Beach. <laughs> is actually pretty bad. It's so bad that apparently Disney doesn't want social media Mm -hmm. to see how bad it is. If you try and go into the the food tents or the food rooms, they ask you for ID first to make sure you're staying there. Oh. Yeah, interesting. But at uh, Coronado, I actually walked around and there is one area that's walled off for construction. They've got the, the scrims up, but doesn't look obtrusive at all. In fact, if you didn't know that there was construction going on there, you would just think it was sort of a blocked out place for future work. It's Yeah, it doesn't look bad at all. I have to say, though, for two guys who spend so much time talking about behind the scenes, this is the ideal hotel. I mean, it's just sort of like, right? <laughs> we'll bring along a bolt cutter and open a couple of fences. <laughs> you know. I'm, I'm not saying there's going to be a 2, a 2 a.m. meetup by the bulldozers. I'm not saying there's not. Right? <laughs> all right. Can you imagine, Jim, we're, you know, we're, we're going to be sitting around Rick's one night. Someone's yep. going to say, I dare you to <laughs> dot, dot, dot. Yeah. The next thing you know, we're, we're on a police Blotter. All right, so Tammy, do you have any idea about what rates are per night at Coronado Springs or at the uh, the other resorts that uh, that people might want to stay at? I do. Uh, with tax, Coronado Springs is one ninety eight a night, and okay. I was just telling Jim that Jim and Lynn are so popular that we have already sold out of rooms at Coronado Springs. What? Now we are. Yes. Who are these people? <laughs> Oops. <laughs> now we are hoping they're going to drop some more rooms back into inventory as they clear up uh, what's going needs to be under construction and what doesn't. So we're taking a waiting list for Coronado Springs, but they offered us some other resorts as well for the overflow. Okay, so all five rooms are gone now. Is <laughs> that what right. you're saying? Yeah, that's just, right. Both of them. Both of them. That's right. <laughs> that's How? right. So we have rooms at Caribbean Beach, which you were just talking about for 180. Don't, don't. Okay. <laughs> oh, you're kidding me. Oh, the theme continues. What? There was a, there was, wait, there's, there's availability at Caribbean Beach? There is. Huh. There is. I have to interrupt here. I have already 
by accident, mind you, wandered through the construction site at Caribbean Beach. I was down there for the, the pre-Pandora event, and that was the hotel they put me up in, and I hadn't gotten the memo. <laughs> you missed the message. You know, the, you know, in fact, I actually told the guy who was picking me up, meet me at Old Port Royal, not knowing it was a construction site. So I come out of my room, and there's this like oh, little Jesus. low fence that I think, oh, they're keeping people off the beach. So I step around it and actually walk into Old Port Royal, and I I guess the first clue that maybe things weren't quite right is the doors being held open by an upside down salad bowl. <laughs> I did the same thing. I walked in and I thought, well, uh, it was either the day of or the day after they closed it, but the doors were being held open. And I thought, well, okay, this is their last minute thing. They're trying to sell the last bagged lunches or whatever left, left over from the last race. I walk in, there's like two construction guys looking at me like, uh, what do we do now? Jimmy, I love the hotels you picked out for this, really. You know, if you could make the third hotel backstage, customer-only building, all right, we'll just set up cots in the cafeteria. You know the bridge by the studios? Yeah, under that. <laughs> All right, Timmy, what other hotels you got for us? Uh, okay, Boardwalk. Boardwalk, that's a good option. Yeah. <laughs> that right. one, a good price, $300 for Boardwalk. That's not bad at all. No, it's not. And uh, interestingly enough, Animal Kingdom Lodge it, coming in a little bit higher at 360 And then All-Star Sports for 116 Oh, 116 is not bad than uh, that at all. Yeah, so we have a few options if we don't get more rooms back at Coronado Springs. Okay, so Friday, greet everyone. Jim and I will st- apparently be at the bar from 4 p.m. onwards. That's going to be fantastic. Wow. Okay, let me call ahead to the Betty Ford Center, all right? <laughs> I want to make sure my suite is ready. Yeah, can you get the two-bedroom and I'll just join you there? I think it's cheaper. <laughs> there you go. All right, Saturday, what are we doing, Tammy? All right, Saturday, we're starting off with breakfast in Animal Kingdom at Restaurantosaurus. Nice. Before the park opens, it's a breakfast buffet they were going to set up there for us. And you and uh, Jim are going to do a Q&A with microphones and whatever. Walk around. Uh, people get to ask you. I'm assuming anything, like no holds barred. They can ask you anything mm-hmm. they want. <laughs> and you think Maury Povich is a, is a spectacle. All right. <laughs> What's next after we get out of security? <laughs> if we're all allowed out next, we will walk over to Pandora for a walkabout. Very cool. Okay. Oh, fantastic. That'll be a lot of fun. All right. The next thing on the schedule so far is the dessert party that night at Illuminations dessert party in the Mexico Pavilion in Epcot. Oh, that's gonna be fantastic. We may do we may do something at Epcot prior to this. I think we have a space for another thing that's to be determined, but we'll we'll think about that. Yes, we are leaving that to your brilliant minds to come up with something to entertain us all. So that would be Len. <laughs> brilliant mind, <laughs> singular. Right. And where, where at the Mexico Pavilion is this going to be? If it's Illuminations and the dessert party? Well, they tell me that we will have a good view. Uh, it's I've got pictures, but I can't show it to you. Mm-hmm. It'll fit a lot of people, and they'll have a cash bar, and they'll set up a lot of desserts there for us. Mm-hmm. And is this on uh, either side of La Hacienda or the Cantina? I think from La Hacienda. Yeah, okay, so I know exactly where it's at, so it's behind the shop. Yeah, that's a good spot, actually. That's a great spot for Illuminations, probably. Yes, don't hold me to that, but that's what it looks like from the picture. Mm-hmm. Good, okay. I've never I've never actually done a dessert party from there. That'll be a first time for all of us. All right, good. All right, what are we doing Sunday? Sunday morning, the morning activity uh, should be a free one, but it is TBD. Uh, we're leaving that to y'all to come up with something there, and we'll figure that out. <laughs> I think Len and I were, were batting about an idea of actually going down to the shore of Bay Lake in... Fort Wilderness and actually with Discovery Island in the background just sort of talk about why here? Why out of all of the, all of the swampland in Central Florida? Why here? 
<laughs> it all has to do, actually, with that island we can all no longer get to. And no, we're not going there, all right? Just in case anybody's wondering and bringing an inflatable canoe. We're not doing that. I think that's actually a good topic. The uh, And I will add that the number of times that I've considered trying to get on the, the ferry to the Magic Kingdom in a scuba suit at night to just sort of hop off the end is more than more than zero. <laughs> I like what it. next, thing? All right, next, sometime in the afternoon, we haven't nailed down the exact time, but I would say two, probably around 2, two o'clock, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, back at Coronado Springs, is when we'll do the live podcast recording. Excellent. So we have uh, brand new material coming up for this, stuff you guys have never heard before. That should be a lot of fun, again, until we get kicked out. Yes, and that one, we've got the room for several hours that day, and we've got Mickey-shaped snacks coming, and so it'll be it'll be a good time. And then I'm presuming that evening, back at Rick's again for more drinking and talking? Yes, at, and actually, and also an informal kind of meetup at Mickey's Very Merry Christmas Party. Very cool. Oh, fantastic. That should be a lot of fun. Yeah, we thought we could do some ugly sweater contests, maybe things like that, and a uh, group photo, so yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we could take turns riding with people, uh, riding rides with people. That'll be fun. Yes. Maybe some piggyback rides through the thermos. <laughs> Even better, even better. Actually, let's see if we can get how many people can get on the jingle cruise. Oh, yes. Maybe put Leno on boat, me in another boat. Oh yes. Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll do our uh, maybe we'll do our own script uh, script for the jungle cruise. Oh dear. <laughs> okay. Oh James, you and I have to talk about this. Okay. Oh that'd be amazing. Yes. And and then we and then we drink. Is that it, Timmy? That's then right. Drink? Then then and then Monday morning it's just an informal breakfast meetup send off. That's it. Oh. We, we give everyone their tetanus shots. We send them on their way. Wow, that <laughs> yes. actually sounds like fun. Yeah, the thing I like about it is I've done a number of these events before for you know WWTA and the other shows. And the thing that we learned going along is two or three events a day is perfect in terms of not exhausting everyone by the end of it. We've tried you know putting five or six things in a given day, and by the end of it, everyone is just frazzled. So this sounds perfect in terms of getting in the right balance of... Uh, relaxation and, and whatever you call meeting Jim and me. <laughs> All right, uh, Timmy, why don't you tell folks where they can find more information about the event in case they want to alert authorities or actually book this thing? <laughs> All right, it's on our website, Storybook Destinations forward slash Disney Dish. And uh, we also email anytime vacations at storybookdestinations.com. And we have a Facebook page as well. It's linked on our website. So Fantastic. Thanks very much for giving us this rundown. Make sure your insurance is paid up before we get there, please. <laughs> Deal. All right. All right, folks, you've been listening to the intro to the show. Let's get on with our next show. Shall we, Jim? Uh, we shall. Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa. And this is another show for summer of 2017. Let's bring in the man that inspired us all to wear bikinis, one Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? Ah. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I said, I, said, I said wear bikinis. I meant drink martinis. Better. Sorry. Yeah, it's better. <laughs> wow. That's a vision you cannot see. Okay. We'll wake up all streaming right, later tonight about that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And it's uh, apparently this is the plot of Stranger Things 2. Well, there we go. So, Jim, a couple of news items and then a quick listener question before we begin our continued history of Fantasmic today. So, first thing is Universal recently announced they're closing Dueling Dragons and replacing it with a Harry Potter coaster. Jim, what a what might be driving this? It's not like the Harry Potter money train hasn't stopped running back and forth between Islands of Adventure and Universal Studio Florida. Yeah. Other people call it the Hogwarts Express. Me, it's the money train. <laughs> That's true. And it's really about capacity, particularly on the Universal Studios side. When this was originally built in 2010, there were two rides that were repurposed. One of them was Dueling Dragons. This was a Bollinger and Maybrillard coaster, the coaster company out of Switzerland. 
And the other one was the Flying Unicorn, which was down the other end, and both of them got sort of a Harry Potter themed overlay. I mean, the Flying Unicorn became the Flying Hippogriff, and mm -hmm. Dragon Challenge became Dueling Dragons. But it was always kind of an artificial fit, especially with Dueling Dragons Dragon Challenge. I mean, I don't sure. know if you remember going through that when it was Dueling Dragons, but it had... It's the longest queue in the entire world. Like, I've had relationships not last that long. Also, you were walking through a mausoleum. I have never seen that many skulls in my entire life. Again, my relationship history begs to differ, but okay, whatever. <laughs> Right. <laughs> but yeah, I mean... Welcome, it, it, welcome to Therapy with Len. <laughs> there we go. But yeah, it, it occupies six acres, this attraction, of right. primo real estate. Given what Potter makes per square foot, it just makes sense for Universal to take this ride that sort of works and change it into a truly specific Harry Potter experience. And they've been working on it for a solid year now. Oh, really? Yeah. In fact, I was just chatting with a friend who was like, oh, thank God, we can finally talk about this. This has been under deep, deep, deep cover for a while. And again, it's going to help so much with capacity on that side of the right. park, which really gets tight, especially now that they're doing that nighttime projection show. Right. The new uh, Harry Potter castle show. Right. Yeah. Jim, so, how much capacity did they lose after the accident on Dueling Dragons? Uh, it's like stopped making it be dueling dragons where they can only run half of it at a time. Is that part of the issue that they're looking to rectify here? I want to say that was five years ago when yeah. he was hit in the head with a phone. Yeah, I got hit in the eye, lost an eye, uh, yeah. over it, which is which is tragic. Yeah. yeah. So the old format of the coaster was there were instances where there would be high speed passes between the two mm. coasters. Apparently during one of those, a loose object came out, hit this gentleman in the face. He lost, I think, an eye mm -hmm. because of it. And since then, the two coasters were not able to run simultaneously. You were launching two trains simultaneously, each of which held 32 people. Mm -hmm. This was a two-minute, 25-second attraction. They were bumping yeah. people out every 70 seconds or so. This severely damaged capacity. Oh, yeah, I know. No, it's, uh, they really, really cut it back. I mean, basically in half, right? Yeah. And also, I mean, two and a half minutes for a coaster ride is fairly long. It is. But in the end, it's all about this sort of fit Harry Potter. And, and to be honest, there's a part of me that's really going to miss as you were going up the hill and seeing all the handmade signs for the, <sighs> the various houses and then to go into the tent and see the Triwizard's Cup. Yep. Though, from the friend who had the tapestry, the $50,000 tapestries that you can't see in the dark in the room there, the fact that now those are going to go away, that's kind of a heartbreaker as well. Well, I mean, if any of our listeners has a castle, the wall that needs adornment. There we go. I got to say, Jim, the uh, Dueling Dragons is one of the few roller coasters that absolutely terrified me from the minute I got on it. I'm fine with Hulk, mm -hmm. but I think Dueling Dragons and... Pepsi Max big one at Blackpool in England mm -hmm. are the two rides on which not only did I bargain with God about what I would change in my life if I were able to live through it, but it was actually a back and forth negotiation. <laughs> <laughs> like we're able to get a couple of addendums in there. Because uh, oh, wow. the, the lift hill is that long. Yeah. So I have mixed emotions about this thing going away, but I'm interested to see what they bring back. So a couple, a couple of follow-up questions. One, when do you think this thing's going to open? Oh, we have a September 5th close date, 
And mm-hmm. supposedly the teams will move in within a week to dismantle. Okay. They want the coaster out and gone by November. They be begin doing site prep in November, December, and go with construction January 2018. And we'll be getting more information about the actual attraction at that point. Mm-hmm. But remember, this is Universal, which Comcast has handed the money fire hose to. Right. It's not a coincidence, it appears, Bob Chapek announcing all of these big attractions being added to the Disney parks. And right. also lying out there in the bushes is Universal's announcement of Nintendo Land. So this is going to be kind of a one-two punch of having giant new attractions in both parks out ahead of Disney's 50th anniversary. And that is, in fact, the goal, Land. They want both of these things up and running before Disney starts to walk the stuff it's bringing out for its year-long 2021 50th anniversary celebration. Let's talk about the Potter Coaster. Do you think that thing opens in 2018? I would say more realistic to 2019. Okay. And remember that there's other components of this that haven't necessarily come on the table yet. For years now, we've been hearing about the Great Dining Hall experience, which supposedly all along they've been talking about if they ever got these six acres that they would be expanding, not just adding new rides, but also adding other experiences. Realistically, though, with the build and the size of the building this thing is supposed to be contained in, and then all of the theming elements, we're probably looking May 2019. We already have Universal bringing online spring of 2018. It's Fast and Furious replacement for Earthquake the Big One and Disaster Studios. So if you want to start lining up, April 2019 should be about right. Okay, so it looks like Universal is going to roll out this Harry Potter stuff to compete with Disney's Star Wars. Mm -hmm. What's the opening for Nintendo Land? Well, they haven't announced it, but the goal is to have this entire land up and running 2020 at the absolute latest 2021. All right. So basically it's going to be Universal has Harry Potter and Nintendo Land versus Disney's Star Wars Land and the other things that we mentioned sometime in the Mm 2019-2020. All right. We'll uh, we'll see what happens on it. A couple of other quick things, news-related on Disney. One actually leads into the other. Disney's Hollywood Studios announced today the opening of a new Grand Avenue area at Disney's Hollywood Studios and the opening of a baseline tap house, which I guess is a it's a beer house that sell uh, that offers charcuterie plates, you know, cheese plates, meat plates, pretzels, and things like that. So, Jim, a couple of questions: Where the heck is Grand Avenue area? Is this, this like Mama Melrose's? Back there? This is a park that's kind of reinventing itself. Oh, Jim. Phyllis Diller's face was reinventing itself. (laughs) I think we're way beyond that now, James. (laughs) And you're right. One of the aspects of dealing with the incipient arrival of Star Wars land is where are these people lining up? How are they lining up? Yeah. What we formerly knew as the streets of America is... Yeah, but they're going to need places to line these folks up. So they're sort of redesignating certain parts of the park. Remember the thing where they did Phineas and Ferb? Oh, that's the Grand Avenue. Yeah. So it's a new definition of the word grand with which I am unfamiliar. All right, fair enough. Give it time. There are grand things on their way, Len. This is the grand seat that you go to the grand section. All right. But it is back in that, in that area of the park, right? Yeah. At least what I have been told 
as of this point. Of course, you know, again, I could be wrong. I constantly am. I'm a little surprised that we're three weeks out from the closure of Great Movie Ride, and Disney has yet to announce any sort of live entertainment to take the place of the, you know, 2,000 people an hour or whatever that Great Movie Ride was was handling. I mean, even if the ride was operating at 60% of its capacity, that's still somewhere in the neighborhood of 12 to 1,400 people an hour. Here's an interesting stat, Jim, that I, w- I want to get your opinion on. If you look at the percentage of people who were in the studios and who went on Great Movie Ride, I believe it was something north of 40% of the people in the park mm-hmm. actually went on Great Movie Ride, the single largest percentage by attraction of any other attraction in the park. So more people went on Great Movie Ride than went on Toy Story Mania. What's going to happen? Where are those people going to go when Great Movie Ride closes? Well, right now, there's a lot of pressure on entertainment to come up with character cavalcades. I've been told that the Streetmosphere folks have been told that there's going to be lots and lots of additional shifts available. Is anyone going through the Rolodex for the number for mulch, sweat, and shears? Because I have it. <laughs> in case anyone's, anyone's call me, I can put you people in touch. There's just a realization that it's going to be a hard couple of months. We'll tough it out, but it's crucial that they turn and burn on getting this Mickey's Runaway Railway ride up up and running as quickly as possible. Because, again, it's the thesis attraction for the park. It's right there, and Mickey's do, particularly this version, the Paul Ruddish take on the character that's been so popular on the Disney Channel and Disney XD. It's just sort of like... Again, I hate it when people who wear ties talk like this, but it's just sort of like, you know, we'll connect with the kids. <laughs> really? Exactly. Because exactly. really, I think the blood's yeah. not getting to your brain. Loosen the tie. It's like, <laughs> the kids. That's why I don't wear them. That's why I don't so, wear them. Yeah. All right, Jim, one more thing. Uh, I don't know if you noticed this, but it came up recently that uh, Disney's value and moderate resorts are being sold on Priceline Express. So this includes not only the all-star resorts, but also rooms at places like Port Orleans French Quarter in the middle of summer, in the middle of August, for as low as $97 a night. That is substantially less than the $250 a night rack rate for the same hotel, and also substantially less than the $165 a night, which was the previous best discount. So, Jim, i got to ask you a couple of questions here. It's unusual, right, that a moderate is being sold for under $100 a night when presumably people are not staying at Caribbean Beach already. They should be staying at the other moderates. For there to be availability at $97 a night, that's indicative of something, right? Oh, God, yes. But we've been talking for months now about the chilling effect of the visa situation having on international travel. So if you've got that component of the people who make up your standard group of people who are coming over to Walt Disney World mm-hmm. and are concerned, you know, don't necessarily feel comfortable about making that trip now. You've got to fill that inventory somehow. And when you think about, honestly, how many hotel rooms are now standing empty at the, the Caribbean Beach because of construction? I mean, that a third? Yeah, so the a third of the rooms have been taken out because of construction, roughly a third. The thing that surprises me is we've been telling travel agencies, and I'm sure the travel agencies agencies have been doing it on their own, have been telling people, don't stay at Caribbean Beach mm-hmm. for at least a year. Yep. So presumably, those people were already going to other moderates mm-hmm. as well. And the fact that, that these other moderates are now on sale in, in still what is what considered you know summer vacation time, middle of August, tells me that, that demand for the rooms is, is soft. 
Yeah, but the weird thing is the disconnect. I was just yesterday looking at photos that were being taken from inside of Animal Kingdom and, and mm-hmm. the line going into Avatar that doubled yep. back on itself. I mean, it, clearly there are people coming out to check out the new stuff. Is it just that there isn't enough new stuff? Honest to God, I think that's exactly what it is, Jim. Mm-hmm. I think Disney got caught flat-footed mm-hmm. between 2015 and 2019. There's basically nothing new opening. You know, they've got the Toy Story Land coming up next year, but they put so much uh, time and money into Disney Springs that they basically put the parks on autopilot for a few years and didn't open up anything. And and like I said, now they're they're scrambling from behind. I think half the announcements you saw at at D23 are basically a reaction to the fact that nothing was in the pipeline. Yeah, yeah. The irony is it is such a bear now to travel across property because, you know, if you think about all the infrastructure work that's being done now on roadways. Oh, yeah. I mean, getting into the studios is a nightmare. I live six minutes away from it and I don't enjoy doing it. Six Mm -hmm. minutes. I mean, that's a hassle. And good news is, you know, in a couple of years, uh, most of the stuff will be in the rearview mirror and we'll be able to see. You'll be able to ride some new rides, get in some new restaurants. It'll be uh, it'll be better. My curse of being an old fart is remembering people announcing wonderful things. In fact, when we start talking about Fantasmic again today, we, we have to touch on the Disney decade and all those wonderful things that were going to be built and absolutely positively announced that never actually made it off the drawing boards. I remember we, we talked about it briefly during a live show at Epcot one time. But uh, yeah, all right, before we get on to Fantasmic, Jim, one quick listener question. So this is from Matthew Phillips. Mm-hmm. Thanks for sending it in. And Matthew sends in a link to an Orlando Sentinel article about the financial struggles of one cast members who's worked at Walt Disney World for years. So this ran back on the 17th of July. And if I recall the details correctly, this is a cast member who was living in a hotel offsite. His car had broken down, couldn't afford to get it fixed, and was basically taking the bus back and forth to Disney, to his, to his job at Disney, where he was a full-time cast member. And I think he was making around $13 an hour, if mm-hmm. I recall correctly. So, so let me ask you this question, Jim. I don't want to talk about the specifics about this particular man, but you and I have both talked to many cast members about, for, for lack of a better term, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Mm-hmm. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but I mean, like, you know, what's your, what's your ultimate goal for your career? And, and a number of them have said, what I really want to do in life is make people happy. So implying a customer service job at Disney. And so the, the question that I, that I always have, not only for them, but like the larger question is, what career path do those people have? If you think about it right now, even if you're the very best customer service person, you're the very best customer service employee, it's probably not possible to raise a family on the money that you would make just doing that. Even if you were legitimately the very best at it, we as a society don't pay enough in customer service to customer service people to do that. So, so what do you do there? It's a societal problem, but right? it's not a Disney problem. It's like, what do you do with these people who are very, very good at customer service, yet the market for customer service isn't that great? What do you do there? I was just talking with a veteran of the uh, Disney College program who mm-hmm. went into the company and would actually was pulled aside by a manager. Basically, what he told her is, look, this is the time when you leave the company. And it's like, you know, what do you mean? I'm really enjoying myself. I'm having a good time. You don't understand. This is Disney. We don't appreciate you till you're gone. <laughs> well, we'll bring you back. I swear, but you, it's, it's, the, it's like Napoleon. You've got to go to way to Elba for a little bit. No, that's it exactly. He re- referred to it as the out and up practice that if you leave the company, in this case, they actually left to go work for Darden. Okay. Put in your time there and then come back. 
I guarantee you, you'll come back into the company three or four levels up, mm -hmm. higher pay, better appreciated. I mean, that's part of the problem is that yeah. there are so many wonderful, dedicated people who work for Disney that the company, frankly, doesn't appreciate because they just take them for granted. But it's like, well, they're them and they're going to do their wonderful work. And so many of us have wonderful vacation memories because of the kindness that these very same people showed. And yes, yeah. I mean, there were awards and there were recognitions and their pins, but it's like, yeah. it would be nice for these people to make a living wage. We could go into the whole thing that happened as Eisner came through the door and the notion of taking a full-time job and changing it into two part-time jobs right. so that they wouldn't have to pay health care or benefits or that sort of thing. But that's not just Disney that did it. That's corporate America that did that over the past 20 years. So many of those people who were full-time employees still stayed. They just found another job to supplement their Disney income because they so loved what they were doing. I mean, eventually, a lot of them just got frustrated and left and... But when you look at so many of the uh, things at Disney, whether it's the college program that sure. when you think about how much money the Walt Disney Company makes out of that resort and you hear a story like that where you have this poor guy, just the way they described the multiple bus trips he had to make to make it to work. Yeah, he's spending like an hour or two on the bus. Uh, oh. I don't know if it's each way or, or total, but but I guess here's the, here's the larger question. For the hourly cast members, the way to make more money is to get promoted to management, right? Mm -hmm. Is there any scenario in which Disney could see paying a cast member who's very good at service the median U.S. wage, which is around, what, $45,000, $48,000 a year? Is that mm -hmm. even even possible? Because I think right now, this, this cast member who's been there 13 years is making like $27,000 a year. So basically, increasing his salary by 80%. If he's legitimately you know, one of the very, very best. Or is it simply one of those things where... We're not going to do it because we don't have to. There's there are 500 other people who can take this job and do it almost as well. It's an interesting question, right? But is there? It is. It is. Problem is, it's, it's financials getting in the way of humanity. No, 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 I know. Disney was the company that dismantled its lead system. It used to be that there was sort of this interim phase between being an hourly and and management, and that was being a lead, and they made that go away. So, Jim, let's, let's switch over and talk about Fantasmic. We had left off on the last show talking about the history of Fantasmic. Mm -hmm. And you had mentioned some really good stories about how different uses were being considered for Tom Star Island, including Haunted Mansion, right? Grim, 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 Ghost of Things, and yeah. other things. The weird thing is nothing ever happens in a vacuum. And one of the things that finally made the Walt Disney Company decide that, okay, maybe it's time to move forward with this waterfront show for Disneyland's New Orleans Square, it was actually the success of Illuminations, which debuted at Epcot Center in January of 1988. It wasn't necessarily that it was a wonderful show sponsored by GE that made Disney decide that, hmm, we need to revisit this idea for Disneyland. Rather, it was the fact that Suddenly, all of the restaurants around World Showcase began mm -hmm. booking out months in advance because people are like, okay, I've heard the show is good, so let's get a meal at 7 or 8, and then we can walk out of the restaurant at 9 o'clock and watch Illuminations. Or we can arrive at 7 and just sit there for two and a half hours. Yeah, well, sure. that's it. All right. so this didn't go unnoticed by Michael Eisner, and Michael 
wanted the same thing to happen to the restaurants around Frontierland and New Orleans Square, which were doing solid lunch business, but then weren't meeting capacity or financial goals as the dinner hour on. But, but here's the thing. He knew that uh, putting a show in of this size was going to be a huge disruption, at least when it came to the day-to-day operation of the theme park. Sure. America was going to have to be drained. Uh, that meant the Mark Twain, the Columbia, the Mike Fink keelboats, and Davy Crockett war canoes would be offline for months, and, and not to mention Tom Sawyer Island. So that's a huge hit. You know, when you think about what that would do hourly and daily uh, capacity-wise for Disneyland. So he continued to hesitate to turn the key in the project. July of 89, Disneyland opens Splash Mountain. $70 million flume ride, which went $30 million of budget, but it's it's also a huge hit. It's driving visitors to the park. Tennis levels for the first six months of the opera that's in operation go through the roof, which brings us to January 1990. And January 11th of that year, the Disneyland Party Gras Parade debuts. This is something they've Party set up. Gras. Yep. First time they've, they've used inflatables of cold air inflatables of size. And again, it's just what it sounded like. It was a Mardi Gras with dance breaks and pulling people off the street. And, you know, early use of the interactive uh, parade idea when they launched it in honor of the park's 35th anniversary. They brought back all three hosts of ABC's live broadcast of the grand opening. So you had Art Linkletter, Bob Cummings, and former President Ronald Reagan. They're all in sort of the lead-off car, and it's so funny because you have the characters walking up the street, but interspaced between the characters are gentlemen with sunglasses and earpieces who look like they would kill. <laughs> wow, this just says happiness. Anyway, on that exact same day, as we mentioned a little earlier, Michael Eisner unveils the company's plans for the Disney decade, which involves all sorts of new ride shows and attractions being built at Disneyland Park, with the first being Mickey's Toontown, which would open in January of 1993, and then it would be followed by the Indiana Jones Adventure, okay. which is March of 1995. Downside of this is there would be no new attraction of size at Disneyland from July of 89, the opening of Splash Mountain, to January of 1993, opening Mickey's Toontown. That's three and a half years, Len. Yeah. So again, we talked about getting caught flat-footed at the And, and okay. for a theme park that relies on people who live less than 100 miles away to make up 70% of its, its guests, that's a really risky thing to do. And Eisner actually flashes on this, that September of that year, he reaches out to Bob McIntyre. He's the VP of Disneyland Entertainment. And Michael tells the Roberts, look, we don't have anything big and ambitious for Disneyland for 92, and we need to come up with something fast. And So this is uh, September of 89, he's saying they need something for 92? This is September of 1990. Oh, geez, even worse. Okay, all right. All right. <laughs> One of the reasons he's calling right now is this right. is the summer of Dick Tracy. He's released to theaters in 1990, and Disney had hoped that Dick Tracy would become the next Roger Rabbit, you know, and it would be the inspiration or a jumping off point for new ride shows and attractions for the parks, or at least yep. give them walk around characters. And, and it didn't. <laughs> well, I think we've talked about the Dick Tracy's Crime Stopper attraction, where it was this immersive interactive attraction where you rolled through this giant show building yep. that was comic book meets Great Depression inner city. And you're supposedly breaking up a group of rum runners, which means you're leaning out of a moving car 
with a Tommy gun. I don't know why this idea didn't go over. <laughs> the Disney refused to let it go, and at one point, this was actually supposed to go into the big city section of Tokyo Disney Seas. They had this room set up at Tahunga, a half-scale room, and the Oriental Land Company executives came over with their wives to sort of be sold on the park. And one of the things they showed them at Tahunga was this room. And, you know, the Japanese executives enjoyed it, but their wives loved it. It's one of these things where it's like, can we get these women out of the car? It's like, no, they want to go again. You have to reset the room. And it's just sort of, I don't know what that says about Japanese society, but to give a tiny little <laughs> Japanese woman a Tommy gun was very empowering, something they really enjoyed. Okay, so it's now it's uh, September of 1990. The Dick Tracy thing doesn't pan out. They've got yep. to come up with something for 92. All right, go ahead. Site prep for Mickey's Toontown had begun in late 1990. And that side of the park, they had already had plans in place to introduce, as of March, Disney Afternoon Avenue and Baloo's Dressing Room. Things to sort of hold as placeholders. Toontown, too, they had to go under the berm, right? They had to go under and beyond the berm. So that in and of itself was a logistical challenge, right? Well, and never mind that you had to shut down the train. So now- Train, I was gonna say, yeah, the train too, yeah. Yeah, so again, capacity once again takes a hit. Yeah, yeah, okay, all right. Doubling back to the 35th anniversary here, show director Barnett Ricci had been tasked in 1989 to come up with some sort of anniversary show that could be presented at a park. And the thinking was, what if we stage it on or around Sleeping Beauty Castle? In a 2002 interview, she, when she's looking back at the 10th anniversary of Fantasmic, Ricci talked about, I had an idea for an anniversary show for the castle that would make use of special effects techniques like lasers and mist curtains and, right. and combine them with live performers. So she does a lot of research on technologies that were available at that time. And one of the ideas that Barnett wanted to explore was water screens, which in this case were supposed to have risen out of the moat in front of Sleeping Beauty Castle, one to the left of the drawbridge and one to the right of the drawbridge. Okay. Now, given the availability of the technologies that were available at this time, we're talking late 80s, she was in anticipating that what she'd be able to do with these water screens was lasers projected on them and that they could do shooting stars or rainbows. And sure. meanwhile, up on top of the castle, there would have been this group of singers and dancers that were performing in the parapets. Now, Len, there's only three problems with this plan. One is there's not a whole lot of room up on the roof of Sleeping Beauty Castle for dancers and singers to move around. Yeah, because, I mean, it's at, it's at scale anyway, right? I mean, so it's it's already smaller to begin with. Okay, then... The fact the castle was built 35 years previous, so much of the roof is made out of plywood sheeting, and having actually stood on the roofs of Main Street for the 25th anniversary of Disneyland, I can tell you for a fact that in some places, only the termites were holding those together. They held hands. I mean, just so, you know, the notion of I'm dancing and now I'm through the castle on the floor with a broken hip. And then when you put a full size adult up on Sleeping Beauty Castle, you yeah. suddenly realize, wow, that's a lot of use of force perspective. That thing is dinky. So in the end, they tabled this idea. But the interesting thing is just as they shut down the project, she gets sent a, a videotape. And this shows this mist screen technology that a French company developed. And basically, the mist screens that this, this technology could make it create were massive. We're talking 50 feet wide, 30 feet tall, six inches thick. You could point a 70 millimeter projector at these things. Really? And, yep. And they'd reflect the image. I mean, it wasn't 
crystal clear, but there was enough of an image so that if you projected on this thing, you could actually make out what it was, whether it was a scene from Bambi or Snow White or that sort of thing. And it was oh, wow. this one technological breakthrough, these enormous water screens that could be an actual reflective surface that then made the Imagination River Spectacular, which remember, this is still the original name, that could go by. Imagination River Spectacular. spectacular, you know, and, and in we, fact, what year was this? So, uh, so they were considering this for what, 1991? Uh, this is now September of 1990. Michael says go, so they have 20 months now to do it for 1992. Yeah, just for perspective here, because I was as you were talking about the water screen feature, I was thinking, why don't they just use what Bellagio has in Las Vegas? And then I so I looked it up while you were talking, and Bellagio didn't actually open until 1998. So, really, this is to your point, this is cutting edge water screen technology at the time. No one has this sort of thing yet. Okay, yeah. all right. Because they don't see an entire show based on this, they want some visual variety. So it's like, yeah. let's do this and live performers. Okay. And Barnett begins to look at the site and the size of it. And it's like, geez, to fill this up, we're going to need 50 performers. Well, you'll need more than 50 because they need vacations. They get sick. They go, yeah. There we go. Uh, so you need, you need like 75 or 80, right? Okay. All right. And then, you know, just to make this operationally sound, it's like, let's make the show 20 minutes long. Why 20 minutes long? Because according to the tech people that she'd been talking with, to get all the boats back into position to reset the show was going to take it right. at least twice as long. So in theory... If they got good at it, they could do this show three times a night, on 9.30, at 10.30, and 11.30. That schedule, okay. due to crowd control issues, how long it actually took to load the audience in and out of Rivers America, yeah. wound up being tweaked to 9.30, 11 o'clock, and 12.30 a.m., which then got Disney wow. in big trouble with the neighbors due to noise and fireworks issue, which we'll, we'll get to eventually. Wow, so they actually started a show at 12.30 in the morning? Yeah, I mean, that first summer particularly. <laughs> <laughs> wow, all right. But given the amount of time, effort, and money that went into production of Fantasmic, I'm told that Disneyland ultimately spent $30 million in the show. Failure okay. was not an option. It's Bob McIntyre, again, the, the president of entertainment, put it, a lot of time, effort, and expense have gone into infrastructure. What we've done is build a new theater for Disneyland with a show that can be changed when there are new ideas and new technologies. And, hey, it only took 25 years. And <laughs> we can build a venue here in the river, the, the place that can we can put on the kind of show we've never been able to do before at Disneyland. And, and we'll have it for a long time. And he wasn't wrong. Nope. The only problem was that what Bob was telling the press that because of the construction had been slowed, it takes them till January to start pouring the concrete on the bottom of the Rivers of America. They, and they, they changed the whole, the, the entire bottom of the Rivers of America because the clay that had been put there when Disneyland was originally built had started to leak. They were losing, Len, at this point, 50,000 gallons of water a day. Wow. Was leaching into the soil. And even then, you know, they had to wait for the concrete to cure. So yeah. the the river itself isn't refilled till February. So you. February of what year? February of 92. Oh, geez. Okay. So time is tight. They're not even doing testing the water screen technology or doing any technical rehearsals till March. But they're showing individual elements to the brass. But nobody has seen the entire show yet in one fell swoop. And then because of the delaying construction, the original April 1992 opening gate gets pushed back by a full month. Some of the stuff that they do 
again, they, they've changed out the new version of the show. I, I haven't quite got the info yet on what the performers are doing now, but mm-hmm. so often in the original version of the show, take, for example, if you remember the Pink Elephants on Parade number where you see the Tom Sawyer's Island rafts with the, the monkeys on them and you know yep. they, they disappear around the corner. The second the lights go off, all right, that thing comes into shore and the people who are in those monkey outfits unzip them and they're dressed in pirate costumes. They now race across the island, throwing pieces of costume behind them, and they run up the gangplank to the Columbia just in time for the cannon sound, and now the monkeys have become pirates. But, you know, as big as the cast for this thing, and it's actually, the well, again, we're talking the original Fantasmic at this point, 51 people. There were 48 people behind the scenes, whether they're working puppets, driving boats, or, again, scooping up monkey parts. So basically 100 people involved in this thing. Yeah. There are so many great little stories associated with this thing that I I wanted to share this one with you, Len, particularly, because I know at some point in life you're going to be in this situation. (laughs) Okay. You've got the Maleficent dragon head, which, Mm -hmm. again, at this point is really just a head on a stick, 48 feet up. But you have to get that gout of fire to come out of its mouth. And which in turn lights all the you know the fire on the river. Care to guess how that that works? The dragon head is inflatable, right? Well, it it, it was, but we're talking specifically about the fire effect or, or what powers it. Is it natural gas? No, actually, it's cremora. Really, the, the coffee drink, the, the non-dairy creamer that comes in powdered I've form. Heard this. Okay. I've heard that this is flammable. Is that flammable, really? It's, what they did is they throw out this giant wad just before you know that moment of the show. They throw it out of Maleficent's mouth. It creates a cloud. They then produce a spark, and that's what that, that huge belch of flames. That's Cremorlin. Is it really? Well, it is, and I know you. You're going to be locked in a break room at some point in your life. I'll need to get out, and, and I'm going to have uh, a spark plug, uh, a D-cell battery, and all the uh, non-dairy coffee creamer I can handle. I'm thinking to myself, you know, if you're the Disney company, right, mm-hmm. and you're negotiating with Cremora, whoever yep. makes it, to buy 10,000 pounds of this stuff, you know the Cremora people are like, oh, my God, this is fantastic. You know, we're so happy that you're going to use this. Tell us what your customers think of the taste. And, and Disney people are going, uh-huh, customers, uh-huh, taste, uh-huh. Yeah, we'll get right back to you on that. <laughs> Larry, load up the dragon. (laughs) I I can't help but think, what's going to happen if I take a bottle of Cremora with me on a plane? Oh, yeah, forget it. No, you'd be the TSA. And and by the way, it's only Cremora, not Coffee Mate. Evidently, Coffee Mate will not achieve this effect. You know that there are people who probably blew up the Disney break room (laughs) and then had to justify, like in order to not get fired, they had to justify it by saying, no, we were testing flame effects. And it just, you know, things got out of hand. And, oh, oh well, you're just being creative and out of thinking out of the box. Congratulations. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, anyway, we've yet to get to the actual debut of the show, uh, which will happen in May of 1992. Likewise, what happens when the show travels to Walt Disney World and its mutated form to Tokyo Disney Seas. But I promise we'll get to the very next show. All right, folks, you've been listening to the Disney Dish podcast with Jamil. We are produced fabulously by Aaron Adams. Please go on to iTunes or Stitcher or your local fire department wall. And rate our show and tell us what you would like to hear next. Also, don't forget to send in those listener questions. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show. Take care.